This is part two of my chat with Ormish, and so I'll keep my introduction short. As you can imagine, we meander through topics on storytelling from around the globe. We talk about art, activism, political messaging, Banksy, and also listen out to what Ormish describes as the fast food of cinema. Thank you, Ormish, for your time. Enjoy. I want to come on to talking about one or two of the other docu-movies that you sent me. Um, but just on, on, the, on the point that you make, when I, I grew up on American and British TV and cinema, and uh, when I see things produced nowadays, like the, you've got the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and so on, it is so repetitive. It's so one-sided in many ways. Okay, yeah, in the Marvel universe, there was the Black Panther, and that gave a slightly different perspective, but it was still an Americanized perspective Ooh. from a different area. Um, yeah. And we, what we need to do is see different perspectives and allow those different perspectives to come through. And so w- when I saw this article by Juliette Asante about African cinema, about how it has developed, um, about how it needs to develop further with funds and with faith from within. Did he mention Osman Sembene? Sorry, which one? Did he mention the name Osman Sembene in his I, article? Uh, this I'll have to quickly go through. It doesn't jump out to me. No, go on. Tell me, but tell me, please. He's considered like uh, the grandfather of African cinema. Okay. Oh, no, actually, there are a lot of people that don't know about Osman Sembene and his impact, mainly because uh, he comes out of Francophone Africa quite early after African countries gain independence. And at that time, the Anglophone African world and the Francophone African world are very separated by language and by colonial connection. So the universities are not talking. Uh, we are not showing their media. They are not showing ours. It's all in French. We can't understand anything. They are black like us, but they're completely cut off. Funny thing, right now, English and all sorts of different pigeons are what are connecting us, even us Pan-Africans. English, uh, you know, colonial language. Mm-hmm. I've got gripe about that, as you remember. <clears throat> but... Um, yeah, so I feel like uh, Osman Sambana, he, he is to African film what people like Hitchcock were to Hollywood, these early figures whose ways of, 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 of depicting, in fact, in, 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 in African literature, there's a book by Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart. 
which is considered a foundational text. Similarly, Osmanis and Bene, who also is a writer, made some of the foundational films that I would say, you know, we call African. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually a big student of Osmanis and Bene, and I feel that he actually was on the edge of distilling a certain, like, uh, I would call it an African film language, a language that is not of the West, of, 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 of telling African stories. And it's something that uh, a lot of African filmmakers, I think, have a touch of in their work. It's something I would like to crystallize as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I really hope that it, it, it finds expression because there are, there's far too much. Um, whenever I speak with a friend of mine from Colombia and we, we talk about politics and so on, and he always laughs at me and says, "You're so Eurocentered, you're so Eurocentric, and um, you know the the, the, the rest of the world exists too." Do you have access to African films right now? Do you have Netflix? I do. Yes. Yeah. Have you looked for African films on Netflix? I haven't, and this is one of the things I've um, I've recently been on more of a trip down trying to identify um, the history of racism in, um, in in my where I grew up and in my area. Um, but I I've, I've become familiar with the Black Book by uh, Aditi Effiong, so I, I need to watch this as well and educate myself more mm-hmm. on African cinema. I think. I, there's um there's a there's a a film I think I think it's still on Netflix right now called Nairobi Half Life. Okay. Yeah, I would say that's like uh, all. It's the film every Kenyan would recommend to you as the quintessential Kenyan film to watch. A bit of an action thriller movie about the city and crime and. It's a it's an interesting story of the city that I'll tell you about one day. Okay. But at the same time, uh, I also suggest that you watch another one, which is, I think, on the opposite side of the spectrum, while the other one will give you the rough side of Kenyan life. This other one is a very tender story about a young girl who wishes to be a superhero. It's called Supermodo. So those two films will give you a rough idea what's and and actually I I know all the filmmakers that are involved there but they'll give you a rough idea just what I think the possibilities are with Kenyan film. I feel like uh, personally I have very little respect for Hollywood as we would say uh, particularly because even though they are capable of producing the world's best quality of of spectacle, they are far from being able to produce the world's best quality of story. Mm-hmm. And I feel, I feel that where a story is concerned, it's a bad market. I wouldn't shop for stories there. Uh, even earlier, when I was learning film, I found out that if it's it's like uh, <clears throat> it's like the difference between fast food 
and your mother's best soup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's an independent filmmaker out there who can cook your mother's best soup, but Hollywood has specialized in making chicken taste a certain crispy way. And it's got too many calories and it's really actually fattening up your imagination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it isn't really giving your imagination nutrition. You understand? So I feel yeah. like Hollywood does the equivalent of film fast food. And I'm not saying film fast food doesn't have its occasions. Like there are actually occasions when I personally say today I want to eat fast food. So for that purpose, I say, you know, mm-hmm. if they're the fast food people. But I definitely don't consider them my primary, even source of uh, inspiration for stories and ideas. Mm. I'm, I've always enjoyed a lot of European independent films. Uh, German, French, the French are always uh, very either romantic or over-thoughtful. The Japanese anime, Japanese anime films are probably the world's most imaginative pool of storytelling. In fact, if we are going to talk about pure imaginativeness and humor and, 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 and even just even just spectacle, let's just talk about spectacle. An anime beats Hollywood hands down, you know? Mm. So uh, I feel like in terms of story and also the Japanese tradition of storytelling, because remember, I'm also a storyteller, a theatrical storyteller. The Japanese theatrical tradition of storytelling is also part of that anime tradition in many ways. There are a lot of anime uh, epic series that are based on traditional tales, yeah? And there are some that mimic the formats and borrow the characters, you understand? So Japan's Japan's anime culture is much more deeply woven with a very rich historical tradition, whereas Hollywood operates on the surface of picks and chooses. Actually, Hollywood attempts to distill from other cultural markets. It appropriates a lot of stories from elsewhere and attempts to do. It has actually appropriated a lot of anime stories, you know, Mm. yeah, including one of my favorites, Ghost in the Shell, which it redid as a a human version. I mean, I'll be honest, they did give it a good shot because they were primarily interested in replicating the visual effects. And like I said, they are very good at spectacle. But the heart of the story, again, they couldn't touch it. So uh, the Hollywood version, it makes me feel awe at the technical ability, but it doesn't make me feel deep emotional sadness like the original Japanese anime version manages to do still. And I don't know what that feeling is, how to describe it, but as a filmmaker, I feel like that's something important. It's something that should have value in the market. Hollywood would definitely not love that because that would totally uh, change their fortunes. And of course, Hollywood itself has stories where uh, we were talking about racism, yeah? So, for example, look into 
the scary movie franchise. Have you? Do you know the scary movie one, scary I've, movie two? Yeah, I've not watched it. It's not my kind of thing. But uh, yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. Please tell me though. Look into that franchise and into the people who created it, and to the people who eventually ended up owning it. You shall find some very familiar monsters. Yeah. People, okay. people who people who are known as monsters, but who you didn't know were monsters also in a business sense. So even Hollywood itself would probably be a much better market if the monsters within Hollywood weren't uh, basically eating up other people's ideas and uh, how do you say appropriating and mm-hmm. taking away other people's copyrights. And so Hollywood has a, a problem also in itself. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, but you know what? Do yourself a favor. Please. Netflix. Netflix has um, the good luck of picking from all these different story pools, but a lot of people, their algorithm, uh, there's an algorithm on Netflix too, so it's literally keeping you in your bubble. Yeah. So do yourself a favor and actually. The way you do research, maybe for a podcast, mm-hmm. do research on the films of other. Like I literally do this sometimes when I'm on Netflix. I type country film just so I can see, like, like after a country like Togo in Africa. Yeah, I'll type Togo film, and I want to see what comes up. Like. Like what I this is a country I know and I am curious about. Do you, you know how much you can learn by watching a film, Zach? It's almost as good as taking a trip to a place. If you know really how to read a film, there's there's what's happening in the story, but everything around the story is Togo. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, it's it's something like just do yourself a favor and explore like that. And it will also help you to not be, I mean, you also don't want to be algorithm, algorithm, (laughs) algorithmized. (laughs) No, you're right. To to be honest, uh, a lot of these uh, streaming platforms, they they, they also produce things. Oh, here's one that you might like. And I've started to ignore them because they almost always get me wrong nowadays. Uh, They think I just want to watch one kind of thing. And I'm not really sure that the algorithm is based upon exactly what they think I want to watch or if it's based on them plugging their newest uh, episode um, of something. So, yeah, you're right. You're right, though. I I really should and I will um, do a bit more, a lot more research into African movies. I, I do feel the need to hear different stories. And up for the last couple of years, I've been satisfied by hearing different stories through my podcast. So speaking to people such as yourself, um, there's a First Nations doctor, um, Dr. Borchart, who I've, I've also spoken to on the podcast. And so so you know, there are people that I try to get completely different perspectives from. Um, but I could also do that with my viewing uh, and not just with my uh, podcast. So I'll th- I thank you for that. Uh, but I, I do want to speak one at least a few minutes, if possible, about one of your um, other docu-movies, uh, if possible, because even in our conversation today, we've spoken quite a lot about art. Um, mm. And I really, 
as much as I enjoyed watching Relay Point Omega, I, I felt that your other movies connected because of the political message that they were giving about the importance of art, which you've also emphasized here with your words. Um, mm. But at the time that you were involved in these other projects, it seems as though it was very important for you to to speak about these things. And, you know, pan Afri art, I think, is fantastic um, as a movement, as a platform. Are these activities and groups still ongoing? Because I remember you said that during the pandemic, a lot of things were disrupted. Yeah, yeah that is true. So there has been transition, there has been change. Um, for example, um, each of the individuals within that uh, documentary has gone on to achieve amazing things. Um, uh, let's just start from the, the crew, the cinematographer. I was directing Dems, recently released his first full nature documentary. Uh, Shabu Mwangi, whose art exhibition we went to visit, has since uh, built uh, an art center in Lunga Lunga slums, and uh, along with his collective Wajuku Arts, and um, they've they actually represented Kenya at Documenta. If you if you remember Documenta, the art festival in Kasa, it happens every five years, I think. Okay, it's I think it's, I think it's one of the world's biggest. Yeah. So uh, Shabu has gone on to do amazing things. And of course, his art, as always, is considered some of Kenya's best uh, best art. Uh, so like he's, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, I'm pretty proud of his success. Uh, uh, Robert Munuku uh, went on to, who, who I collaborated with in the production of that video and who I also interviewed. He went on to, actually the group, we, we, we had just started, that's the first video that was ever done by Mau Mau Arts as a, as a group. And Robert Munuku has gone on to work with Mau Mau Arts and produce quite a lot of uh, his own uh, different short and feature films. Uh, who else am I leaving out? There was Gisa from Uganda. Uh, Gisa, Gisa has built an art center in Kampala and is currently doing art workshops and uh, art collaborations with different artists from Kenya. And uh, always he teaches uh, young artists in Uganda uh, who else was there? Uh, there was Sasha Key, but now Sasha. Sasha was sort of on the tech side, and uh, she was working at the art space. Unfortunately, the art space temporarily shut down during the uh, during the pandemic, so we lost contact. I haven't. We haven't met since. Occasionally, I get a. a I think almost like an automated email or something. But that's about all the contact that remains. So yeah, maybe the Panafri art didn't remain very pan in terms of remaining together, but in terms of each individual uh, sticking to the journey of art and 
achieving amazing things in their own right. I'm quite proud of all the all the people in that in that in that video. And um, yeah, it's just a, unfortunately Panafriat itself as a movement that we were building, you know, that didn't that didn't survive the pandemic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a shame because there was a lot of powerful messaging within it. Um, I'll tell you what that powerful messaging did. It built the individuals up. Mm. I feel like each individual has gone on to be some sort of a leader in their own right in some different space within the arts. So, yeah, it's possible that that no, that didn't go to waste. I that I can still feel as part of the wind in my sails, you know. Mm. And these people, yeah, like their success gives you a little bit of fire, you know. Yeah, of course. Why would it not? I mean, people find inspiration in in many ways, and uh, these are people with whom you've crossed paths. So, um, oh, they're still good friends, all of them. Okay, very good. Um, I, I especially appreciated their reference to graffiti. So for me, when I was growing up, um, oh, by we, the way, now yeah. I was forgetting one other person in that. Oh, please, yeah, yeah. Swift, the graffiti guy. Guess mm. what? So um, myself and Swift, we are in business together now. We we also ah. we we run an art studio. Oh, cool. Where he also does his work, and where I'm I'm I'm, I'm where I'm currently based. So. Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> interesting. Mm. I forgot that. But yeah, so it's interesting. There's a way in which that entire group is still probably the most dedicated artists I know. Mm. Yeah, I was going mm. to say that for, when I was growing up, graffiti was kind of uh, considered n- not really a, an, an art form, but more like a, a public nuisance. But really... Um, for, for people to actually understand graffiti better, they have to see graffiti through the perspective of the graffiti artist. And w- what I found great about the documentary was the message that graffiti is a kind of art that is immediately presentable to the public and which the public can immediately establish a relationship with. Whereas a lot of different kinds of art are either hidden away in galleries or museums or, or in books or something and are not necessarily quite so directly accessible with the community. And I, I found that a really interesting and powerful message. Yeah, yeah that is true. And um, Nairobi has a very, actually that's the interesting thing. You could say that the place where we host our our studio right now is sort of the heart of the graffiti community in Nairobi at the moment, or rather it's the place where they're, there have been multiple places where they've been welcome at multiple times to paint, to just do graffiti events. But right now we are the only ones offering a space like that. And yeah, it's uh, it's quite special. I feel like personally, I met graffiti properly through activism. Mm-hmm. So, see, that's the other thing that graffiti can do that other paintings can't really do because of class. You can't sell a painting for a hundred thousand dollars with a political uh, message. You know, mm. it would be <laughs> it would immediately complicate the sale. You know, I feel like uh, graffiti, on the other hand, because it has its ways of 
not costing much and of being done quickly and of and of immediacy. Mm. It's the kind of art that is also even applicable in a, you know political or revolutionary sense. So as an activist, I'd say, in fact, that we did apply graffiti for the purpose of activism a lot, where we used to work together with, you know, that's the organization where we met all those artists you saw in that uh, in that in that film. So, yeah, uh, graffiti does have a little bit of a special place. I feel its its power is uh, underutilized. Yeah, indeed so. And uh, p- people like me who, uh, from the the slumber of uh, ignorance with regards to the meaningfulness of graffiti art, are slowly waking up to, to what it can actually represent and what it has represented for a long time, but that which I've been you blind know, to. Mm. Do you know the artist Banksy? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like um, of all the graffiti artists I know about, he's one person that has done the most to raise the the stature of graffiti in people's perception mm. because his graffiti managed to it, it's it it was meaningful it was meaningful and his visual language was i would say powerful a, a powerful visual language and meaningful things to say you see so yeah because he had those two things, he has those two things, a powerful visual language and a lot of meaningful things, even to artists. I remember this one time when uh, everybody was uh, cutting out walls that he had painted on and selling them at galleries for millions, and then he orchestrated the destruction of a painting just after it had been bought. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, where the painting went through the frame with the, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, it built a shredder into it. So I'm, um, for me, I'm, 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 I'm interested in that kind of uh, expression. I'm interested in the kind of expression that is, you know, I do theatre, yeah. So yeah. in that in that moment, I can see Banksy not just painting, but painting for the purpose of theatre. The shredding of that piece of art in front of an audience in whose eyes its value is extremely inflated, beautiful theater, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so Banks is not just a graffiti artist, he's, he's theater. In, in, and, and because graffiti is in the public, it puts the theater in the open. So forget about paintings hidden in galleries, even theaters hidden behind walls, graffiti. It's a different theater. It can open up. There's a lot of possibility with graffiti. Mm. And, 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 and if we are going to be fancy about it, you haven't even started talking about the current possibilities where you can integrate graffiti with uh, 3D projection and digital mapping on flat and curved surfaces. There's a lot now visually that can be achieved if you think about if you if you are willing to look at your wall as something other than property, and I think that's something else that graffiti is very revolutionary in doing, in looking at our surroundings as something other than property. That's actually the problem with graffiti and the authority. That's why graffiti must always be insulted, 
that's why you were taught to see it as something less than art because mm. it has always challenged the idea of your environment as property it it turns your environment in it gives your environment a second function that has now to be contended with consider how uh, cities nowadays put spikes around the the walls where people homeless people might sit yeah yeah so think about graffiti as a force that is against that thinking yeah because that's the thinking that this wall is my property i am bank so and so you know yeah. who cares that who cares that you're dying <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i feel like graffiti graffiti can come and uh, an artist could come and write above that spike sit here <laughs> and it would mean something <laughs> yeah but you know like i'm just thinking about that from and uh, yeah i'm i'm i guess i have a bit of a, a streak that still has that activist part yeah which is good to hear mm-hmm. um very good to hear and uh, remains inspirational too I, i i mean listening to talking about that and and remembering the impressions that i had as a kid about or what i was told i should feel about graffiti it it kind of points out the how propaganda can simply be spread in such simple methods um that you can yeah. dismiss an entire structure of activism purely because people say yeah uh, graffiti is bad don't look at it and so therefore so if graffiti is bad the messaging is bad they back it up with enforcement and uh, i'm absolutely sure like uh, there was a i think in london for example there was a time when they were imposing pretty steep sentences for 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 graffiti but the culture had also grown quite powerful mm. but yeah let me tell you something interesting yeah uh the experience we've had here yeah mm-hmm. uh my friend swift will tell you there's a there's a, a time they were invited by a museum uh, the kenya railway museum invited graffiti artists to share the space and guess what they did they painted the walls they painted the walls they these guys had a huge 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 wall yeah and they gave they wanted the graffiti artists to paint the history of there's a very popular story which also you should look up about the man eaters of sabo this a uh, a certain pride of lions that prevented it really delayed the british from building their colonial railway through the country by eating on all of the indians who were building the trains for them i've watched so i've watched lions. a movie about this yeah <laughs> yeah so these lions uh at first the museum wanted them to paint that story and they did but then after that they painted something else and something else and something else and eventually this is a museum that i mean not many people were interested in the trains these are ancient colonial trains not particularly good designs anyway from the past you know mm. so they weren't getting very many visitors but once the graffiti artists had painted all the walls of the railway museum they started getting visitors coming to see street art now the museum charges money at the gate but it charges money for seeing the trains when they realized guests were coming to see the artists 
and to buy art. Do you know what they did? They insisted on charging everybody at the gate, even to see, basically, it was almost as if you couldn't, I couldn't go there to see my friend and say hi. They wanted me to pay the full fee because they had realized that the money was on their walls. We had put money on their walls. But guess what they did? Now that it was on their walls, they they actually kicked the artists out and they remained selling that art. I can't even take my guests to see my friends art there without paying, paying, you know? So I don't know, it's just, there's a complicated, uh, there's a complicated relationship there. Uh, the value of the art can never be denied. It creates, it becomes, you put it on a wall and after a few weeks, people are lining up to see it and you want to rob me, you know? So you can't deny it has value. You can't deny that I've given you something, yeah? However, you're powerful enough to actually they I don't I, I don't remember what excuse they created there was like ah I remember oh my god it was even more disgusting they were <laughs> kicked out because they were kicked out because there were there was a church next door and the church complained that they were painting nudes on Sundays like you know the people <laughs> that the oh congregants <laughs> the congregants coming to pray were having to pass by, by because they were on the first part and then the church was on the second part. So the congregants were complaining they had to look at the news on their way to church. You know, these guys kicked the artists out. Uh-huh. That's this country for you. That's actually, remember I told you that this, the, the status of artists here is not what it is in Europe. Mm. So yeah, if a church complains, that actually gets, the art, like they got kicked out. Mm. And that was actually the previous place where they had walls to paint. So now the other place they can paint is our studio. So yeah, it's an interesting little graffiti story there for you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and some deep hypocrisy too, because I, I mean I'm not particularly familiar with a lot of Renaissance art, but if I if I do remember correctly, there was a lot of religious art which involved nudes, um, a lot of uh, sexualized scenes, and so on, uh, by some very famous uh, artists, and uh, that's. That's exactly what the church wanted. I don't think the church here has any grasp of that kind of history. First of all, the churches that we are talking about, the government created this law that made it really easy to create a Pentecostal church. And a lot of uh, crooked entrepreneurs have gone that way. And, you know, Okay. Uh, so, so these are not churches that have any kind of history or any kind of connection to history. These are just churches that are behind a charismatic preacher, mm-hmm. a preacher who, when he grabs a microphone, he can make people feel something. I consider these people lost theater artists, some of them. Some of them truly are touched by the spirit, but some of them should be in the theater. Yeah. Like some of them found their way to the wrong stage, and their actions prove it after a while. 
unfortunately, the 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 abuse um, and misuse of other people's faith uh, is prevalent in many countries. We we see it a lot. Unfortunately, it's horrible. Yeah, Omish, we've. Um, I think I've got enough material here for two podcasts, to be honest, if not more. We digressed quite thoroughly today. We definitely have, um, but that's fine because it, it's it's led us into some really really interesting uh, topics. So I'm I'm going to try to work out exactly how best to put them all together. But um, what remains a consistent point is how wonderful it is to have you come and speak with me. Um, I had so many questions lined up for today's topic. Well, we haven't addressed many of them, so I'm hopeful that we'll we'll do so at a future point. So I'll, I will definitely be in touch um, to try to find out um, when you'll be available. But yeah, um, thank you very much for taking the time. To... Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, just like always. Two and a mic.